Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Matthew Feeney. I'm a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome you all here for a discussion on the state of freedom in the United Kingdom. Uh, the country had a general election a few weeks ago, and the result surprised almost everyone. Uh, and I think we have a great panel here to discuss the results and what they mean for the future of freedom uh, on the other side of the pond. Uh, I'm going to introduce all of the speakers uh, right now. They will then speak, and you will all then have an opportunity to pose questions. The first speaker is Mark Littlewood, who's the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is the UK's original free market think tank, which celebrates its 60th birthday this year. Before coming to the IA, Mark was the head of media for the Liberal Democrats, uh, before going on to found Progressive Vision, a classical liberal think tank. Ian Murray is the Competitive Enterprise Institute's Vice President for Strategy. Uh, in addition to his work at CEI, Ian is a visiting fellow at the Adam Smith Institute and board member of the Cherish Freedom Trust and American Friends of the Taxpayers Alliance and advisory board members of Global Britain and the Young Britons Foundation. Tom Clarity is the editorial director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Before coming to Cato, Tom was the managing editor of Reason Foundation and the executive director of the Adam Smith Institute in London. Uh, it's my pleasure now to turn over to Mark Littlewood. Matthew, thank you. Well, thanks very much, Matthew, and thanks to all of you at Cato for um, hosting this event. I've got quite a lot to pack into 15 minutes. Uh, what's just happened in Britain? Why? Whether it's good news or bad news for those of libertarian disposition. And I'm going to try to make some predictions about what's going to happen next. I've got a few slides to just show you the, the results. But I think it's just worth remembering the differences and similarities between the sort of elections we hold on the other side of the pond and the sort of elections you hold here. The British general election is to some considerable degree basically the equivalent of an all-out election for the House of Representatives. So you have 650 districts or constituencies. You need to get to 326 of those to form a majority in the House of Commons. Unlike you guys on this side of the pond, uh, our head of state is not elected. They are appointed by God. Uh, and our second legislative chamber is appointed by our head of state. So we make considerable financial savings on not having to hold those two sets of elections that you hold over here. We just elect our lower house. Another major difference, uh, really, between your system or your party system and ours is we have considerably greater support for third parties or minority parties in the UK than you typically see here in the States. So it's quite possible for one of our two big parties, the Conservatives on the centre-right or Labour on the centre-left, to win the election without necessarily forming a majority in the House of Commons. In fact, that's exactly what happened in 2010, where the Conservatives won 307 seats, falling short of that magic number of 326, and formed a coalition with the Liberal Democrats, who had 57, the Lib Dems being a kind of centrist party. Uh, this time round, the Commentary Act and the pollsters agreed. It was going to be incredibly close. It was inconceivable that either the Conservatives, the main centre-right party, or Labour, the main centre-left party, could possibly form a majority. Once the results were in, we were informed by these experts there would be days or weeks of wrangling 
in order to try and form and cobble together some form of coalition government. And most of the projections were suggesting that the total number of MPs who would be more sympathetic to a Conservative-led government would be almost identical to the total number of MPs who would be sympathetic to a Labour government. Uh, the experts were completely wrong. Uh, at one minute past ten, uh, they're not allowed to release the information until Big Ben has stopped chiming, which indicates the polls have closed across Britain. The exit poll was released. The major broadcasters, broadcasters in Britain had got together to interview 20,000 people in key constituencies and asked them how they uh, voted. And there was... Uh, certainly at the IEA, where there were several dozen of us watching it, uh, an audible intake of breath, as the prediction was that the Conservatives would win 316 seats, not quite a majority, but clearly making the Conservatives the only party capable of forming an administration. David Cameron would definitely be back as Prime Minister. And uh, on the implied national vote share, the Conservatives were going to be about 6 or 7% clear of Labour. To give you an indication of the level of surprise uh, and the level of difference that was with the opinion polls, this would have been roughly the equivalent of every broadcaster in the USA saying as soon as they broadcast the results of the last presidential election, their opening gambit being Mitt Romney has won by a clear 4%. Uh, it was about that surprising against expectations. In fact, of course, as the results trickled in over the night, the position for the Conservatives improved still further, and eventually they won not 316 seats as projected in the exit poll, way beyond the 280 or so predicted in the opinion polls. They took a total of 331 seats, a clear majority, albeit just of 12. And since the election, although virtually everybody I bump into tells me that they always thought the Conservatives would win outright. Very, very, very few were saying this before Thursday, May the 7th. So just to give you the sort of results and, and what it looked like, um, and a bit of historical background. Um, Sorry. I can see them perfectly. Yeah. Hang on, you should have those in a few seconds. Should be up now. There we there go. We go. A yeah. little bit of historical background. This actually shows vote shares in the UK for every election since uh, the end of the Second World War. The Labour Party shown in uh, that red line, the Conservatives in the blue line. The yellow line shows the Liberal Democrats and its predecessor parties, and the grey line, all other minority parties added up together. Uh, and essentially to win, typically, not always, a bit like your presidential election, whichever line is higher, the blue or the red, will almost certainly form the government. So as you can see right at the end of that, line, the Conservatives quite clearly ahead of the Labour Party. Although worth pointing out that although the result was met with surprise, was seen to be a triumph for David Cameron and the Conservatives, I think that was really only against the expectations that it was going to be a dead heat. As you can see, in historical terms, the result of the general election was not a spectacularly high point for the Blues, actually about a midpoint. They're on 37% or so. It is not on the, some of the spectacular levels that Margaret Thatcher was able to get in 1979, for example. And that's in part because of the, the rise of the minority parties in the UK. Back in the 1950s, the two main parties between them would have been considerably 
similar really to the USA, where your Democrat candidate and Republican candidate will typically get 97, 98, 99% of the vote between them. That used to be the case uh, back in the day in the 50s, and has more or less continually declined since then. We now have around about a third of the electorate who vote for none of the above, neither of the two big parties, meaning to actually get across the line you now no longer need anywhere near 50% of the vote. 37% can do it for you. Uh, this was the re result in, in overall vote share. The Conservatives, as I say, in a clear lead. And these being all of the smaller parties, some of which I'll, I'll, I'll talk about shortly. And in terms of the overall makeup of, uh, of the House of Commons, as you can see, the Blues just got over the line, just over 50% of the seats, but way ahead of the official opposition. Labour, 99, nearly 100 seats behind, but quite a cluster of smaller groups as well. And in terms of changes, I think just worth uh, pointing out a couple of things here. These show the uh, change both in, in vote share and in the, in the uh, dashed lines in seats. The Conservative vote up 0.7%, you can see that right on the end, a major gain of seats. Not a big shift in Conservative support, some big changes with regard to the smaller parties, a huge boost in support for the Scottish Nationalists, a collapse for the Liberal Democrats. But um, probably if you wanted to credit the Conservatives' campaign with some degree of uh, brilliance, and many journalists are now trying to do so, that is the first uh, full-term government and full-term governing party to increase its vote share after a full term in office since Lord Salisbury's regime of 1900. Nearly always the incumbent administration, if it's been in for a full term, loses uh, votes. So that's the background and, and the numbers and what happened, and it was seen as a surprise. But what happened in the campaign? What was the debate about? Well, the Conservatives had two key messages, essentially. The one was to the first and principal one, which almost became a laughing stock because you could not hear a single Conservative spokesman spit out a single sentence without using this phrase, was that we must stick to the long-term economic plan. Now, for a libertarian audience, that might sound like a slightly Stalinist uh, proposition, uh, <laughs> governments having long-term economic plans. But what was meant by that was that they had spent five years beginning to get the budget deficit under control to reduce state spending. They inherited in 2010 a budget deficit of about 10% of GDP, about £160 billion, pounds, and had gone about halfway to reducing it and balancing the books year on year. In uh, stark contrast to the prophets of doom who are warning that sort of any reduction whatsoever in state spending was going to lead to the end of Western civilization or worse. In fact, the economic figures quite quickly picked up. Private sector job creation has been spectacularly good, more jobs created in the private sector than lost in the public sector by cuts. And economic growth has returned to not spectacular levels, but to about 2.8% per annum. Uh, we now seem to be back on course, having had five years of pain after the global financial crisis. And the Conservatives' central message was, we haven't completed the job. You can trust us with our hands on the tiller. Don't give the keys back to the people who crashed the car. Um, the Labour Party ran on their most 
left-wing platform for many years. Their leader, Ed Miliband, said the economy wasn't working for the poor or average workers. He had little faith in market solutions, a price freeze on energy bills, uh, and uh, rent controls were two of his key policy areas, higher taxes, especially on the rich. Uh, the Labour proposition was one of complaint uh, that things were not working well. That, it now turns out, did not go down well at all. The Liberal Democrats had a rather extraordinary non-proposition, really. They were, they were claiming to be the party of moderation. They were almost saying that we know that you guys, the British electorate, are going to select either gin or vodka, but we would like to be the tonic water that we pour in each glass to moderate either side. Or as one now ex-Liberal Democrat put it to me, that the Liberal Democrats' proposition was the Conservative Party want to take us 10 miles to the right, the Labour Party want to take us 10 miles to the left. We don't care at all which direction we go in, but we're only willing to move five miles. Uh, th this did not uh, uh, whip up great enthusiasm amongst the great British public, and they saw their vote fall dramatically, losing two-thirds of their vote and nearly all of their seats. UKIP, the new insurgent party on the right, ran on a populist anti-immigration, anti-EU, anti-political establishment message, quite fiscally sound. They were not suggesting huge increases in expenditure and quite sound on lifestyle freedoms. They were suggesting that sort of alcohol and tobacco is too heavily taxed and regulated. They got right the way up to 13% of the vote, coming a clear third, but only won one seat in Parliament. The SNP were a big part of the story. Uh, they positioned themselves only running in Scotland, obviously, as the Scottish National Party name implies. They wanted a left-wing agenda, an end to the age of austerity, more government spending, and said they would use all of their MPs to try and lock the Conservatives out of Downing Street. What summed up the campaign and what moved it in one direction or the other? Well, I'm sceptical about so-called events being turning points in campaigns. I mean, I think people tend to make their minds up over a very long period of time rather than on one particular television interview or based around one particular media stunt. But I think that there were two issues which summarised some of the problems that the Labour Party had. One was Ed Miliband, the Labour Party leader, appearing on Question Time in front of an audience of the public and having uh, a grilling from these actually extraordinarily articulate voters and being asked whether he would concede that the last Labour government that left office in 2010 overspent, leaving the budget deficit of 160 billion. He said, no, I refuse to accept that. And there was, you could hear the intake of breath in the wider audience and the sort of sense that this wasn't a fiscally prudent position. And secondly, I don't know if it's made it to sort of social media over here, a rather laughable uh, press stunt in which Ed Miliband stood by a constructed eight foot six inch piece of limestone in which he had etched on the six key pledges of the next Labour administration, all of which were extraordinarily vague, a health service with time to care, whatever that means, uh, and saying that were, were he to be elected prime minister, this eight foot six stone block would be erected in the back garden of number 10 Downing Street to remind him daily of his pledges to the electorate. The Conservative-run Westminster City Council swiftly pointed out that they would probably be unlikely to grant the necessary planning permission to a Labour Prime Minister to erect that statue. His campaign's chief, Lucy Powell, was also unhelpful when she appeared on radio sh shortly after this press stunt to say that although the Labour Party had etched these pledges in stone, that shouldn't be taken to mean that they would absolutely stick to them. I mean, I would 
<laughs> thought if you go so far as to literally etch some pledges in stone, you would have thought that you should be sticking to them. And those two, I think, summed up the failures of the Labour campaign. Lessons and challenges. Uh, here's the good news. And I hope I'm not being too optimistic here. But I think that in the UK, we have shifted now the Overton window on government spending. It is now nearly impossible to be elected as a government unless you are fiscally conservative and prudent and promising to balance the books. If you like naive Keynesianism, the idea that the solution to debt is to spend even more government money, I think has now become an unelectable proposition. That is not to say that there won't be some politicians who advocate that, but it is now far away from mainstream opinion. I don't want to overstate how great those reductions are. The, uh, it was the key issue of the last government, reducing government spending. Uh, they initially planned to end the deficit by 2015 and only got halfway there. They have only been reducing government spending by about 1% per annum in real terms. It's not a libertarian platform. But that is nevertheless the only government to have reduced public spending in my lifetime. Uh, and they are committed to continuing to do so and to reduce the size of the state to about 35% of GDP, which I think would mean proportionately less government spending in the UK than you have here in the United States of America. Uh, the Labour Party are soul-searching about this issue. They are now embroiled in a leadership campaign between those who are determined to be more realistic on state spending and have a more aspirational message to the middle classes. And it's worth pointing out now that it is some 49 years since any Labour leader other than Tony Blair won a clear election victory. The electoral arithmetic for Labour is bleak if they run on the left-wing platform. I just want to finish on what I'm sure will come up a lot in questions. Two major constitutional issues now face the United Kingdom after this election. Uh, one internal, one external. Scotland. The Scottish National Party, a separatist party, got 50% of the vote and 95% of the seats in Scotland. Again, in broad equivalent, this would be like, say, Texas voting 50% for the Texas Independence Party and sending most of its congressmen to Capitol Hill in the name of Texan independence, having recently secured 45% of the vote for Texan independence in a referendum. Uh, are we heading for divorce between Scotland and England? I suspect we may be, and I have to say, I hope we are. Uh, Europe... Uh, we will now have a referendum on the Conservatives were committed to having a referendum on our membership of the EU uh, by the end of 2017. I think that might happen as early as next year. Cameron is pledged to try and renegotiate the terms of our membership and then put it to the British people. I suspect, if I had to bet on it, we are heading for an in-vote on the European Union. Most of the polls are, if you believe polls ever again, are showing a 15 or 20% lead for in. There are some worries, though. Without the Liberal Democrats in government, who I think were a break on economic reform uh, for the Conservatives last time, which I didn't approve of, but were a good check on civil liberties, it is possible that we are going to see more assaults on civil liberties in the name of counter-terrorism and the like. Already the Conservative government now uniquely conservative government is seeking to bring in the so-called snoopers charter whereby we will try and monitor vast amounts of internet traffic in order to track down isis terrorists who apparently mean us harm it is a clearly a policy of building haystacks to look for needles cameron in defending this new approach to security said after the election for too long 
we have been a passively tolerant society, saying to our citizens, as long as you obey the law, we will leave you alone. Apparently that is no longer going to be the prevailing position. Uh, the upside of that is with a small conservative majority, you would only need a handful of libertarian-leaning conservative rebels to derail some of these proposals. And I think setting up such a caucus needs to be a priority. We may get movement on the BBC. <coughs> Sounds like a smallish issue, but we have a state broadcaster that controls 70% of our broadcasting market, uh, paid for by an enforced flat tax of £145 for every household with a television set. Uh, Non-payment of that licence fee is the direct cause of just over 10% of all criminal court cases in the United Kingdom, which does seem to me a particularly high human price to pay for keeping Strictly Come Dancing on free-to-air television. Uh, the flat rate tax of £145 per year is, strangely enough, the only flat rate tax that the left in Britain seem to be very keen on. If you suggested we paid for healthcare or anything else by a poor household tax, they'd be against it. We may see with the appointment of John Whittingdale, who is a long-standing critic of the BBC, movement here towards a less state-run television network. And I think that would have significant implications for the tone of debate in Britain. The BBC, I think, does have a leftist bias. And in fact, watching the results trickle in as the Conservatives clearly won was almost the mirror image of watching Fox News coming to terms with an Obama victory in a presidential election. You could just see they couldn't get their head around to the Conservatives winning. I just want to leave you with one thought. I think we might be in for a period of Conservative hegemony in Britain. A number of things are going to alter and change, and I'm hesitant to make predictions about five or ten years' time, given how wrong the predictions were just five days out from the election. But I think there are reasons to believe that the Conservatives could be in power for a long time. Labour's soul-searching is going to be quite agonising. Senior Labour figures believe this is the greatest existential crisis the party has faced in a hundred years. They need to win back voters on three different fronts. They've lost blue-collar voters who are anti-immigration and quite tough on law and order to the UK Independence Party. They've lost middle-of-the-road voters to the Conservative Party in the south of England. And they've lost vast swathes of voters to the Scottish National Party in Scotland. To try and develop a strategy that can win all three types of those voters back is nearly impossible to imagine. And it was pointed out by a leading Labour man, actually, that the number of Labour MPs left in the totality of the southwest, the southeast, and the entire east of England is now fewer than the number of men who have walked on the moon. Uh, you cannot win an election unless you are winning substantial seats in those areas. There could be a new constitutional settlement in Britain, depending on what happens with Scotland. If Scotland was not in the UK, the Conservatives would have a majority of about 70 for the remainder of the, of the, uh, of the UK. There will be boundary changes. We're not quite as brilliant at Britain as gerrymandering as you guys are in the, in, in the USA, but we're, we're learning from you fast, and the likely boundary changes would probably add another 20 seats to the Conservative Party's position. The uh, Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, and UKIP are now in a period of turmoil. Perhaps that, uh, uh, perhaps that will resolve itself in the next year or so, but I'm not so sure. Uh, so I think we could actually see a good deal of conservative rule, not just for the next five years, uh, uh, but beyond that. So good news on public finances, not such good news and threats, I fear, 
on civil liberties, two big constitutional questions, Scotland and Europe, the latter of which will be very difficult for the Conservatives to deal with as they're strongly divided on it, uh, and I think a Conservative rule for some time. Much done, much progress made, but much left to do. Thanks very much for your time and attention. Thank you very much, uh, Matthew. Thank you very much, Mark, for those uh, wonderful words summarizing exactly what happened in the British election. Um, I'm slightly unusual on, on this panel in that I've been here since uh, 1996. So I have actually missed the entirety of the Blair years and most of the Cameron years. The reason why I left the country in 1996 was because I used to work for the British government. I used to work in the John Majors uh, administration and I helped privatise rail track, uh, part of British Rail, and then fled the country. <laughs> uh, as, uh, as Mark noted, most pundits suggested before the election that there was no way the Tories were going to win this election outright. I was one of those pundits. I wrote an article in The Freeman in which I suggested that Britain might actually be on the verge of a return to socialism. Of course, I was wrong, and I'm happy to be so. But the question is, the Tories won. Is liberty safe? I think there are several ways to look at this. And the way I'm going to look at it, uh, for the most part, is for the issue of regulation. Government spending has been coming down, absolutely. Government is wasting far less of, uh, of the UK taxpayers' money. However, it is interfering over the past... Uh, 15 years has been interfering more and more in the lives of the individual businessman and the individual citizen in, in the United Kingdom. So the question is, from that standpoint of economic freedom, is liberty safe? Well, there's some good news and some bad news. I think the good news is that, that we're likely to see much uh, more deregulation of business. And one of the most important uh, indicators of this was the appointment of Shajid Javid as the business secretary. Appoint, uh, uh, the, whoever holds the position of secretary of state in uh, a United Kingdom government department has a, a very great influence on how successful the policies, uh, the, the, the government's policies are in, in, in getting forward uh, in, in the United Kingdom. When I worked in the Department of Transport, for instance, we had a series of weak ministers and then we had a series of strong ministers. The series of weak ministers were unable to get any of their policies implemented. The uh, civil service, the bureaucracy uh, stopped them, rose obje raised objections, uh, filibustered until they, they, they hoped they would get uh, a new minister who would actually be even more favorable to them. Eventually that stopped uh, the appointment of a couple of very strong ministers led to uh, the pushing through of policies like the privatization of British Rail. So the appointment of Shajid David, who, uh, as my friend Donald Blaney says, is not a left-winger, as, uh, as the business secretary is very important. He has already set out uh, a target of 10 billion pounds in red tape savings, uh, cutting, uh, cutting bureaucracy to 
boost the economy by about 10, 10 billion pounds. There are several ways that they can do this, and the Tories actually have a couple of reasonably good policies that were uh, not implemented very well by the previous business secretary, the Liberal Democrat, Vince Cable. For instance, the red tape challenge, which I know Mark is very skeptical about because he actually took part in it, uh, where business leaders have a chance to, uh, to have a chance to challenge um, uh, regulations that are causing uh, undue burden on their businesses. I think if implemented properly and with somebody like Shashi Javid in charge of it, then there's a possibility that that might achieve some, some business-driven deregulation. There's also the one-in-two-out rule, uh, a regulatory budget whereby if you introduce one new regulation, you have to get rid of two old regulations. So far, the British have, uh, have done this the, the way they always do, which is they introduce a, a very costly new regulation and they get rid of some quaint regulation from the Middle Ages. You know, like you, you're not allowed to sell oranges on a Sunday unless you're a freeman of the city of London, or uh, you are allowed to shoot a Scotsman from, uh, with an arrow from the steps of Queen's College, Oxford, things like that. Um, but I think, I think with Sajid in charge, we have a chance to actually have some real, genuine one-in-two-out regulation, and that could seriously reduce the regulatory burden. But more important than this is the employment law reform that they are pushing forward. And I look after uh, employment, uh, employment regulation uh, uh, in the United States for the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and I just wish we had an agenda like this, or somebody was pushing an agenda like this. They're going to rule that half of a workforce must actually vote in an election, to, uh, to uh, vote in a, in a ballot to have uh, a, successful, a successful decision for a strike. So half of the workforce must actually vote. And in the public sector, and most unionization in the UK these days is in the public sector, just like in the US, 40% of those entitled to, to vote must vote yes for the strike. So there's a, a, a double layer to try and prevent the sort of massive transport disruption that, that we see in London regularly over, over the summer as the Trotskyite uh, RMT union uh, shuts down the tube. They're, they're going to allow scabs. Um, there's been a rule saying that uh, when, when uh, workers go out on strike, you're not allowed to hire contract agency workers to replace them temporarily. That, that, that rule was actually described as insane in the, uh, in the Conservative Manifesto, so they're going to get rid of that. Um, a very important rule is that they're going to uh, not only have opt-ins for paying union dues so that you don't have an opt-out, you're not automatically a member of the union, you have to, have to opt in, but you also, they're also going to make it much more transparent that there, that there, there is this opt-in, because so far unions have been not particularly forthcoming about the fact that their members don't actually have to pay them dues. They're going to curtail facility time. This is uh, an outrage on both sides of the Atlantic, whereby uh, civil servants work, uh, working, uh, supposedly working full-time for the government actually work full-time for the union, and so the taxpayer is paying uh, the, union's, uh, the, the union officials' salaries. So they're going to curtail that, and that's something that we're trying to do over here as well. And then finally, they're going to reduce the corporate tax down to 20%. Any business owner in, in the room uh, must surely be delighted by the idea of paying only 20% corporate tax. This will make uh, UK corporate tax the lowest corporate tax in, in, in the OECD, I believe. So this is really good news for business. I think uh, we, we can look forward 
to expanded economic growth uh, from, a dereg from deregulation of business, a reduction in the risk of union-inspired uh, industrial di disruption, and a significantly reduced corporate tax rate. That's the good news. The bad news is that interventionism is alive and well. If the last part of my presentation was about the legacy of Lord Tebbit and Margaret Thatcher, this part of the presentation is about the legacy of Michael Heseltine, uh, Margaret Thatcher's leadership challenger, who famously said, we will intervene uh, before breakfast, before lunch, and before dinner. I don't think there's a better um, description of the, this new mood of conservative interventionism than on the very first page of the contents of the uh, conservative manifesto, where they said, we have a plan for every stage in your life. Words that should make every libertarian shudder. We just need to look at uh, what they're going to do. There's going to be a crackdown on aggressive tax avoidance. Tax avoidance, which, of course, the Supreme Court Justice Learned Hand said in the United States was actually a moral right. They're going to crack down on tax avoidance. They're going to try and uh, coordinate with uh, international regulatory bodies to, uh, to have global tax evasion initiatives and try and cut down on tax havens. They're instituting two new financial regulators, a financial policy committee and a financial conduct authority, which is a bit like a, a British version of the, of the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is uh, intervening so much in the financial industry in the United States. They're imposing a version of the Glass-Steagall law that was repealed in, uh, in the 1990s here, uh, which separates investment, banks, uh, investment banking operations from retail banking operations. They're restricting bankers' bonuses and interfering with executive compensation arrangement. They've already capped payday loans and uh, have, uh, in, in complete um, uh, disregard of the of all the studies that show the payday loans are actually beneficial to uh, the poorest in society. They're going to create, they're going to spend huge amounts of money, although they're not spending as much money on other things, they're going to spend huge amounts of money on infrastructure. They're going to create a northern powerhouse, they say, turn the north of England into an economic, uh, uh, an economic area as prosperous as the south of England by massive infrastructure projects. And they include these three, uh, Three phrases. We will transform our railway network. Tra they will transform the railway network in a private, in the railway industry is supposed to be private. We will deliver faster internet. We will boost mobile coverage. They are, they are, they are claiming credit for, uh, for, for as much in, uh, as they can of the increase in the economy. They will increase minimum wage. They will uh, force businesses to, to publish their gender wage pay gap. They will increase spending on the NHS. They, will, they have a policy called the Big Society, which is uh, government helping uh, what Edmund Burke called uh, the little platoons. But they're not very little when, the, when uh, government is, is, is funding them. National citizen service, a, a sort of uh, national uh, service, a, a draft for, 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 uh, for, for young people is to be expanded. They're going to expand help to buy. They're going to help... Uh, more, more people to, uh, to afford mortgages uh, who, who can't otherwise. And we know where that, what that led to. Going to protect the green belt. Uh, 
and the, uh, keep the planning restrictions in place that have led to very, very high, um, very, very high housing costs in the, United, in the United Kingdom. They're going to push for a uh, an aggressive global climate pact, and so on and so on. Yes, they have a plan for every stage in your life. This is an interventionist government. That's why my friend Matthew Sinclair, when he saw this, said, Hayek wept. But let's go, get, quickly get back to the, the good news. Um, I think it is important to note that press freedom is back from the brink. Uh, th there was a very real chance in the last parliament that uh, they might have imposed a press regulator uh, on, 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 on the free press in the, in the UK. Looks like that, that is now going to become just a watchdog. And there will be uh, explicit protection for journalists in a new British Bill of Rights. Police surveillance of journalists will be restricted as well. So those are some good points uh, that, that, that we shouldn't uh, forget about. And as Mark said, the appointment of John Whittingdale MP to, to look after uh, the press and uh, the BBC is very important. Again, he's a man with very strong views who should be able, and with a very forceful personality who should be able to drive through the, the, these changes. And uh, Mark has already talked about possible reforms to the BBC. But then there's the $11 billion uh, pound question. What happens with the EU? One of the problems with the deregulatory initiatives is, in fact, most of UK regulation these days comes from the European Union. Uh, there are, by some accounts, up to 80% of regulation is now written in Brussels rather than in Westminster. Uh, although those, that 80% is probably a bit of an exaggeration. But this is where what Mark also talked about, the question of Europe and the Constitution uh, uh, really uh, raises its head. This is the great external challenge for the, for the Cameron government. Renegotiation of the EU treaties is his number one foreign policy challenge. He has to, he has to deliver to the British public uh, some form of renegotiation of the EU treaties. But there's great skepticism in Europe uh, about this. Uh, when I was in, in Brussels uh, a few, uh, couple of months ago, I talked to a lot of people from uh, European conservative parties and, uh, and liberal parties in, in Brussels, and they were all very, very skeptical that Cameron could, uh, could get the, uh, the, the heads of government of Europe to agree to any meaningful renegotiation. So they had actually got to the stage where they were uh, starting to discount uh, the, any possibility of the UK remaining in the European Union. And we see this with things like the, the current, um, uh, current negotiations on financial regulation there. Uh, previously, the British government had essentially a veto over financial <coughs> regulation, uh, regulation because Financial services are basically the number one industry for the UK in Europe. That's gone. The veto has gone because the Europeans view themselves as writing uh, rules for a, a Europe that's going forward without Britain. So I think that's a very, it's very important to realize that there's skepticism in Europe about the possibility of renegotiation. Also, the logic of the Eurozone crisis. Uh, speaks against Britain's, uh, uh, Britain's renegotiation. The Eurozone crisis was caused by a, a huge mistake of uh, going for, um, going for a, a currency union 
ahead of a banking or political union. They've realized what that, 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 that was a big mistake. And so the Eurozone is increasingly committed to, all, to going to first banking and then full political union. Britain, of course, wants to go the other way. It wants, and that's the whole point of renegotiation, they want a less uh, restrictive Europe. So we could end up uh, with, with a two-speed Europe, something that the, the founders of the European Union wanted to avoid at all costs. This is why they, uh, they always talk about ever closer union. If you have a Eurozone going forward for political union and a couple of countries, uh, uh, the UK, perhaps Denmark and Sweden, on the outside, you have a two-speed Europe with, with, with the, um, the, the, the unifying force of the Eurozone uh, essentially forcing out the other countries. So really, uh, Cameron should be looking at uh, s significant pl plans for, for Brexit. They should be drawing up uh, plans for, for withdrawal from the European Union. Uh, they could look at the Norway option, they could look at a Swiss option, a full withdrawal, there's all sorts of things that, that they could look at. Um, but at the same time, as Mark suggested, uh, Euroscepticism has started to decline in the UK recently. So it's possible that we might get this two-speed Europe with Europe not really wanting Britain to be part of Europe, but Britain still voting to stay in, and you get the worst of both worlds. You have uh, a Europe trying to, to, to reform, uh, reform itself in, in a manner that's incompatible with the British way of doing things, and Britain having said, yes, we'll go along with that. This could lead to uh, a potential catastrophe in the future. I know Tom's going to talk a little bit about the, uh, about the Human Rights Act, so I'll, 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 I'll end it there. But I think one thing that's important to remember is that 2015 is not only the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta, it's also the uh, 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. And I think that's what's going to shape uh, Britain over the uh, regards to Europe over the next few years. Thank you. Okay. Well, it's my great pleasure to be the third successive British libertarian to address this audience. Um, and you'll be relieved to know that I largely agree with what has already been said. Nevertheless, uh, I'm going to try and delve a little deeper into some of the issues which have been raised. Um, also shared uh, or offer a slightly different perspective where I can. I'm going to organize my remarks into three sections, uh, which I'm calling the good, the bad, and the Scottish. Uh, in particular, I'm going to tell you why I think the state of economic freedom is looking quite rosy in the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm going to explain why I think libertarians nevertheless have a lot to be worried about. And thirdly, I'm going to try and address that burning Scottish question. So uh, let me start with the point of economic freedom. Uh, now, as Mark has rightly pointed out, no one in their right mind would make the mistake of calling the Liberal Democrat Conservative Coalition government that ruled from 2010 to 2015, a libertarian administration. Uh, nevertheless, I think that we need to uh, accept actually what a good job they have done on the economic front. Um, now, public spending uh, 
was a huge part of the election campaign. It was a central part of the coalition agreement uh, and the program of government over the last five years. Uh, and now when you adjust for inflation and for population growth, um, the coalition actually reduced spending by about 9% in total over the course of their government, which is pretty good going. I think it's especially good going when you consider that they protected healthcare spending in real terms. That is the single biggest item of expenditure uh, of the British government, when they also promised to increase uh, old age pensions uh, according to what they call the triple lock, which was pensions every year would rise by 2.5%, inflation or wage growth, whichever happened to be higher. Pensions are the other biggest ticket item in British public expenditure. So taking those two out, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats did actually quite a remarkable job uh, especially in the midst of a recession following a financial crisis um, of reducing the size of government in the UK. Now, by way of comparison, under Margaret Thatcher's administration, and of course, uh, Margaret Thatcher is seen as one of the most transformative free market leaders in recent times, uh, public spending went up by 18% in real terms. Now, if you look forward over the next five years, um, the Conservative government is promising to cut spending by a further 8% real per capita. Uh, well, that's over the next four years. Uh, then very conveniently, they're going to increase spending by 2% in time for the next general election. But hey, nobody's perfect. Um, overall, over the course of a decade, should this plan be followed, uh, we're looking at the size of the state being reduced from 45% of GDP down to around 35% of GDP. We're really going from convergence with the rest of the European Union uh, towards convergence with the United States in terms of size of government. Now, clearly that is not as far as many of us in this room would like to go, uh, but it's certainly a start. Uh, it's worth pointing out as well briefly that taxes have been cut. Um, the personal allowance, the amount on which you don't pay any income tax at all, uh, has been raised very significantly and will continue to, be do, uh, will continue to do so. Uh, corporation tax cut from 28 to 20%. Uh, the top rate of income tax reduced from 50% to 45%. And the new government has promised to pass a law banning any increases in income tax, national insurance, or value-added tax, our three biggest sources of tax revenue over the course of the next parliament. So that's to 2020. Good news, then, I would say, on fiscal policy. Uh, turning to welfare reform, um, I think, again, the coalition government did a pretty fantastic job. Their policy really consisted of two things. One, making sure that work always paid, that you were always better off taking a job than staying on benefits. Secondly, uh, putting private providers in charge of welfare provision and incentivizing them uh, through payment by results to get people back into work and to keep them there. Um, now, this consisted of an overall cap on the amount of benefits that a household could receive. Um, it consisted of fairly strict work and job-seeking requirements on those receiving public assistance. Um, it involved the creation of a new universal credit, uh, which worked kind of like, or well, it's beginning to work kind of like Milton Friedman's old negative income tax idea in that it's withdrawn at a steady rate so that every pound you earn, you see some benefit of. Whereas in the past, people faced these huge marginal tax rates where they'd actually be much worse off if they earned any additional money. Um, the result of this... Um, the result partly of this, of course, there are other factors involved as well, um, but Britain now has the highest employment rate it has had in recorded history at some 73% of the population. And over the course of the last government, the UK created more net jobs than the rest of the European Union 
combined. So that's more than another 27 countries. Um, this, I think it's fair to say, would all have gone by the wayside had a Labour government been elected. Um, with a Conservative majority, I think it's going to be continued and probably deepened, and with some luck, can be embedded over the course of the next five years so that it's much harder to reverse in future. Uh, the final point I want to make on economic freedom, although this is really more a question of social policy now that I look at it, is the Conservative or the, the coalition government's uh, education reforms, their school reforms. What they did was to essentially introduce a fully-fledged school choice system and to couple that with policies to hugely increase the supply of good school places. Um, they've let a lot of existing schools in the state sector become so-called academies, which gives them a great deal more independence uh, to tailor the tuition they offer to the needs of the students they have before them. Uh, they've also encouraged the establishment of free schools, similar, I think, to charter schools in the United States. Uh, these are privately run, privately established schools that operate within the state system, as in they're funded uh, with taxpayer pounds, um, but they are nevertheless free from most of the requirements uh, that are normally imposed uh, in the public sector. Um, some 400 of these free schools have been established. Uh, there are plans for 500 more. 70% of the ones that have been set up so far have been rated good or outstanding. And I think, crucially, um, the research shows that they are eight times more likely to open these free schools in the most disadvantaged areas compared with the least disadvantaged areas. Um, predictably enough, uh, it seems to be the case so far that where free schools are set up, it's not just that those free schools offer a better education, um, but that because of the force of competition, uh, the other schools in the same area start to raise their game and offer a better education as well. Um, now, it, it, it sort of surprises me, actually, having moved to the United States in 2012 to be standing here today uh, offering such glowing praise of the coalition government, because I look back at some of the things I wrote about them before my departure from the UK. Uh, perhaps I was just in a miserable mood at the time, uh, but it wasn't all that nice. Um, and I kind of look at that now and I wonder why. Uh, when, as I've just explained, I think the Conservatives have done a fantastic job with their Liberal Democrat coalition partners on public spending, on education, on welfare, um, three of the most important issues they faced. I think the, the issue basically is that the Conservatives, or the coalition's rhetoric, but particularly the Conservatives' rhetoric, uh, was really anathema to most of what libertarians believe in. Uh, we want to see people standing up, talking about freedom and liberty and markets, and you basically never get any of that from the Conservatives. Um, on the other hand, the reality of the policies that they've pursued um, have been far more impressive than their rhetoric uh, would suggest. And thinking back now, I suppose I ought to have been looking more at the substance and less at the style. Um, now, I've said that the coalition government did a good job on economics, and I think that the Conservatives will continue to do a good job on economics. Nevertheless, I think there are things that libertarians have good cause to be rather worried about. Um, now, and it's worth saying at the outset, uh, I suppose if we were talking about a Republican government being elected in the United States, we might be worried about some sort of social conservative policies. Um, this, I think, is not a danger uh, with the Conservative Party. Their election manifesto actually said 
Um, our historic introduction of gay marriage has helped drive forward equality, and so on and so forth. Um, I think it'll be <laughs> probably a cold day in hell when you see that in a Republican platform. So social issues are not a problem. Civil liberties, on the other hand, I think are a big issue. Mark has already alluded to this, uh, and I won't repeat that wonderfully juicy quote uh, he offered from David Cameron, uh, essentially suggesting that a free society, uh, according to the rule of law, was something we ought not bother with anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, but the government has already said they're going to seek to bring back the Snoopers Charter. Uh, that's not what they call it, but that's what everyone else calls it. Uh, the Snoopers Charter basically consists of internet service providers and telephone companies having to collect um, every electronic communication anyone in Britain makes and store it for a year. They'll be paid with taxpayers' money to do so, and they will have to make that information available to the police. Uh, to the intelligence and security services, to the National Crime Agency, and of course to Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Uh, it's hard to imagine what could go wrong there. Uh, in the last few days, we've also heard proposals for a new anti-extremism bill in the UK, uh, which basically offers an extraordinarily broad definition of extremism. I know I would probably count under some parts of this. I suspect many people here would. Uh, the government defines extremism, this is a quote from the government, as the vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values, including democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and the mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Uh, we also regard calls for death of members of armed forces as extremist. Uh, well, now, clearly, you can see why a lot of extremism would fall into that category. Uh, you can also see, I think, why with such a broad definition, a lot of, uh, a lot of activity which isn't terribly extreme uh, would fall under it as well. Uh, certainly, if opposition to the rule of law is a problem, David Cameron should be put on the database himself. Um, if it's individual liberty, uh, there are certainly a good couple of hundred members of parliament uh, who should be added to the register. Um, and, well, lots of people who aren't so sure about democracy uh, after the results of the most recent election as well. So what happens if you're defined as an extremist under these extremely broad terms? Well, in that case, the police can apply to the High Court to limit any harmful activities you may undertake. A harmful activity uh, is anything that risks public disorder, harassment, alarm, or distress, or is a threat to the functioning of democracy. Uh, should you meet this very low bar, um, your organization could be banned, your premises could be closed, um, you could be banned from talking in public, you could be banned from broadcasting, you could be banned from protesting, uh, you could even be forced to run all of your tweets and Facebook posts past the Metropolitan Police uh, before you publish them, which is rather Orwellian, I think. Um, now, it's fair to say that the British government is facing a genuine problem with extremism, um, but it's also clear that giving the government such broad powers is extremely unwise. We already know this. Um, in 2005, an 82-year-old gentleman was detained at the Labour Party conference under anti-terrorism laws uh, for heckling the Foreign Secretary. In 2008, it was discovered that 50% of local governments in Britain were using counter-terrorism surveillance laws uh, to spy on people who were not sorting their recycling properly, or failing to clean up after their dogs, or most wonderfully of all, selling unapproved pizza. 
Um, the police have been accessing journalists' phone records to identify whistleblowers. That's happened on a couple of occasions recently, both involving senior politicians. Um, and another disturbing instance, I think, was the treatment of Glenn Greenwald's partner, David Miranda, when he passed through an airport in the UK. He was detained for seven hours under anti-terrorist legislation. Uh, for six of those, he was interrogated quite aggressively without a lawyer present. Uh, all of his electronic equipment was confiscated. Um, and we've seen similar things happen at The Guardian newspaper. Britain's hate speech rules, again, are designed to counter extremism, terrorism, and so on. In fact, they've seen people investigated for calling fat people lazy. Uh, they've seen people arrested for making inappropriate jokes about Glaswegians. And they've seen people sent to jail for sending racist tweets. Uh, I think the lesson here is that there's a good reason why government should be limited, and that's that we're not ruled by angels who can be trusted to use every power we give them justly and fairly and with the kind of reserve which we might think appropriate. That's why I'm rather scared by the powers that the British government is trying to uh, develop for itself in the area of civil liberties. I fear I've gone a little bit long, so I'll go very quickly onto the Scottish question. Mark laid out the political problem uh, very clearly. The policy problem is that Scotland has what the comedian Billy Connolly called a we pretendi parliament. Um, I wouldn't be quite so insulting, of course, uh, but he spoke to a real problem, which is that the Scottish Parliament, although it's responsible for 60% of the public spending that happens in Scotland, uh, doesn't currently raise a penny of that itself. It is purely an elected spending body um, that gets a grant from Westminster and then determines how it will spend it, how it will allocate it. If you imagine a political system with that kind of structure, it's pretty clear why your incentive is always towards spending more, never towards spending less, why people really have no interest in voting for a, for a more free market government. Of course, they can't see the upside in terms of lower taxes or more efficiency and so on. Um, and this is a big part of the reason why Scotland, I think, since devolution in the late 1990s, has continued to drift to the left, just as the rest of Britain, uh, eventually realizing uh, how it had opened the public spending spigots uh, through the 2000s, has tacked back towards fiscal conservatism. This has set up a huge tension within the United Kingdom, uh, such that one wonders if it will remain united very much longer. The simple answer is fiscal autonomy for Scotland. Um, the less simple answer is outright independence. I must admit, I have no particular problem with Scotland becoming independent, uh, but they ought to know it will be a rocky road to get there, a rocky road which will require them to significantly cut public spending, uh, probably uh, radically reduce their taxes to invite inward investment, um, significant public service reform to deal with a population which is aging more rapidly than the rest of the UK, um, and possibly, if they're fully independent, a monetary system which allows them very little flexibility on spending and prevents them, in all likelihood, from being able to bail out their banking <laughs> systems, offer deposit insurance, and so on and so forth. Now, you may think that the vision there I just sketched out is rather a good one from the libertarian perspective, uh, and I would agree with you. Nevertheless, um, it is not what <laughs> anyone in Scotland who's voting for independence expects 
or wants, um, and it's extremely unlikely, I fear, to come to pass. So to sum up extremely briefly, the state of freedom in the UK looks very good on economics. It looks rather problematic on civil liberties, and there is a big question as to whether the kingdom will remain united very much longer. Uh, thank you all. <laughs>
Um, that perhaps is the contradiction. Um, you know, Scotland rejected uh, independence by a 45 to 55 margin in the end. And I think that although the general election results are quite striking in terms of the number of seats and the percentage of the vote the SNP got, um, an awful lot of that is not about independence. Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the SNP, repeatedly said, voting for us in the general election is not a vote for independence. It's a vote for a distinctly Scottish and distinctly left-wing voice at Westminster. Um, it is, by and large, I think the, the surge in SNP support is a lot about uh, hating conservatives <laughs> and Labour being tarnished by their association with the conservatives during that referendum campaign, rather than about the question of independence specifically. Um, sorry, I'll take this gentleman at the front. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Stephen Yelverton. Uh, I'm an American and happen to be of both English and Scottish ancestry. And uh, how does North Sea oil factor in to Scottish independence and what happens to North Sea oil, uh, assuming there's Scottish independence? Well, so my understanding is that, I mean, first of all, Oil has been a big part of the independence movement. Uh, when the independence movement really got going in the 1970s, the slogan was, it's Scotland's oil. Um, and if you apply, I think, the UN law of the sea to divide the territorial waters, uh, indeed, 80, 90% of it would be Scotland's oil. So it's been a motivation for independence. It's also been a justification for Scotland being able to offer a different, more social democratic, more Scandinavian model of government than the rest of the UK. If they were independent, they would have this additional revenue um, that would allow them to do that. Now, the problem, of course, is uh, that the, well, the oil price has plummeted recently. Uh, North Sea oil is also on a long trend of decline. Um, and so even right now, when you factor in the North Sea oil revenues, Scotland has a budget deficit about 50% higher than the rest of the UK. Um, if you imagine that that oil revenue is going to continue to fall, um, they're looking at having a sort of a 15% of GDP budget deficit, twice or more what the rest of the UK has. So they've staked a lot on the North Sea oil. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that logic is coming undone uh, because of other events going on at the moment. I'll just add one thing. that One of the reasons why the, uh, the, the, the North Sea has seen a, a long-term decline uh, in production is because of uh, very significant uh, royalty uh, demands from the, the British Parliament uh, that were imposed actually during the major uh, prime ministership. Um, it is therefore possible that we might see a significant deregulation of, of that sort of thing by an independent Scottish Parliament to encourage uh, to, to encourage more uh, development of, of the North Sea. Uh, the North Sea still has plenty of reserves left. Uh, it shouldn't be written off. Um, goodness, sorry. Uh, I will go back uh, to the back again. Uh, the gentleman in the blue shirt. Thank you. Continuing the tradition of somebody called Stephen, after the last two Stephens, uh, and also the tradition of uh, talking about Scotland. Uh, as a Scottish libertarian living in the United States, um, I was interested that uh, none of the speakers addressed what's happening on the civil liberties front in Scotland. In particular, that under the nationalists, uh, who uh, we're saddled with, unfortunately, uh, in Scotland, we have a thing called the Named Persons Act, 
which is the most deeply disruptive uh, piece of legislation anywhere in Western Europe, and is, in my view, as a, as a lawyer, is quite contradictory to uh, Scotland's uh, any any UK legislation or European uh, human rights legislation. And uh, I wonder if any of the panelists would care to talk about that. We've also had the advent of routine armed uh, arming of the police in, in Scotland, where it was supposed to it happened without any legislative from the Scottish We Pretendy Parliament any legislative uh, authority. It was done under the authority of the, the single, the now single Scottish police force, which is a combined state police force that's been created out of the four, out of the eight different police forces before the SNP took over. They merged them all into one and have routinely armed this. So you can have a domestic violence call or a shoplifting call, and armed police turn up in Scotland. Again, another huge violation of uh, civil liberties in Scotland. And now we also have, the lastly, uh, the, the prospect of an identity card system being used based off the National Health Service, which is, uh, for, for our American friends that we know, we have socialized medicine throughout the UK that requires uh, identification of individuals uh, and then keeping of health records. The Scottish National Party has uh, uh, proposed that those records be expanded and used by all agencies of the state, including the police force, uh, this new single police force that we have in Scotland, uh, to um, to make us all safer from a whole variety of different uh, threats and to uh, uh, expand the benefits of our uh, wonderful new socialist uh, uh, regime. <coughs> this is all happening on British soil. I'm disappointed when I hear uh, uh, Scottish uh, expense jokes uh, by each of the three panelists uh, and a little bit uh, perturbed by it, frankly, because these are we're British citizens up here in Scotland. And in a federal system in the United States, that couldn't happen. We couldn't have such an abandonment of our fundamental civil rights. But under the dispensation we have in the UK, unfortunately, it has happened, it is happening, and there's very little being done to stop it, except to say, well, then let's retreat from that part of the British Isles. I don't think that's a good solution. I think as libertarians in particular, or libertarian-leaning individuals, you should be helping to strengthen those of us uh, that, that are opposing these awful situation, these awful proposals, and this bad legislation that's happening in Scotland. Even if we're not uh, successful at the polls yet, I think intellectually, we shouldn't right. be retreating from any part of the UK or from any, any frontier of liberty. Sure. So any comment on uh, civil liberties in Scotland? Well, I mean, I don't disagree that these things are bad. I mean, the Named Persons Act, essentially, I mean, is a statist attack on parenting and, and normal family structures. But I think what's happening a bit, and I'm sorry if I sound sort of somewhat whingy and resentful about it, is the English are reaching the conclusion, why should I care any more about what's happening in Scotland than I care about what's happening in France or indeed the United States of America? I visit the USA more often than I visit Scotland. Uh, so just personally, I mean, looking at a very narrow angle, I have a, a greater concern in my personal life about you monitoring my internet and phone calls while I'm here in Washington, D.C., than in the vanishing number of occasions when I'm north of the border. Uh, now, that's not to say that I look forward to a socialist state in Scotland that taxes people to death and invades all of their civil liberties and the rest of it, but I share what uh, others on the panel have said, a certain confidence that that would unravel relatively quickly if there was a more liberal England and a discovery process between England and Scotland, rather than us having one of the most centralised states in the Western world in terms of spending 
and regulation. So you, there might be a dose of socialism, but I, I don't think it would last for long if England could be won over to a more liberal regime. And, and I think what we are seeing, as I say, is this growth in English civic nationalism to say, well, if Scotland wants to go down that sort of path, uh, we think that is a daft path to go down, but it's not obvious that we should tie your hands. Uh, and, you know, we wish libertarians well there in that province, that area, that neck of the woods, just as we would in any other, but not particularly more so. Yes, um, I, I think it's very important to note that one of the reasons why you, you, you have a federal system and you have a federal government as a, a, and state governments, the federal government exists to help protect uh, people from local tyranny. And I think that's exactly the, the, the sort of point we're making. But unfortunately, the Blairite devolution did not give us a federal system. It gave us a hodgepodge constitutional mess where some things were fiscally, uh, some things were completely uh, autonomous to, to Scotland and, and some things, and to a lesser extent, Wales and Northern Ireland, and other things were, res were reserved to the Parliament. And these, this wasn't properly thought through. And I think, really, if we're going to sort this situ situation out and retain a United Kingdom, then you really have to look at a proper federal system which, which gets that protection for, of, uh, for the minority from the, from the federal government in, in Westminster or wherever it would be. But we don't have that at the moment, and unfortunately not many people are actually talking about it. I would only add that I think one of the consequences of the political arrangements as they currently exist is that Scottish issues receive virtually no attention whatsoever in the English press. Um, and so my suspicion is that the vast majority of people south of the border have no idea that the stuff you've just described is going on. Uh, I'll admit that I did not know about some of the stuff you were mentioning there, and clearly it is very concerning. But I think that just this kind of um, ghettoization of the media, respectively, in England and in Scotland, has probably contributed to a, a sense of ignorance there. Okay, next question. Um, are any of you called Stephen? Uh, <laughs> go to someone who isn't. Uh, and I remind the audience, uh, please keep the questions uh, brief, succinct. We're in the last 10 minutes here, so I think I'll do two. Um, I will take uh, the man in the yellow shirt, uh, and then uh, Ilya here at the front. Next. Very briefly, I've asked, I'm John Swallow at Arlington, Virginia. I've asked the British Embassy this. What is the very most important political title under the British system of government? Is it the same as the most important political title under our constitution, or is it something else? Okay, and then uh, can we have a question from Ilya at the front? We'll do two. Do you want to ask the question first, or will we answer it? Uh, no, I'll take both the questions, and we can answer both, yes. Yeah, so. Ilya Soman, George Mason University. I guess I'd like to ask about an issue that was talked about a lot during the British election, but only briefly mentioned so far, which is immigration and freedom of movement, both with respect to sort of British immigration policy, where maybe it will be influenced by the increasing support for UKIP and their anti-immigration message, uh, and also with respect to the EU, where from the libertarian standpoint, of course, you guys quite properly mentioned EU adopts many harmful regulations, but they have also secured free trade and freedom of movement over a vast area with 600 million people. So if Britain renegotiates the bad part of the EU, that might be good from a libertarian perspective. If on the other hand, they renegotiate freedom of movement and migration, which some of them may want to do, then uh, that might not be as good. So I wonder if you could comment on the prospects in that area. Okay, so we have questions on powerful political titles and immigration. 
Just on the on the last point, um, the, the question of immigration, it's actually one of the reasons why my view of EU withdrawal has changed over the years. I, I don't know how I would vote in, in the referendum when it comes, but certainly in the past, I would have been much more inclined to vote out. Um, now, I suspect my inclination would be more in the indirection. And the, the reason for that shift is that 10 years ago, um, my clear sense was that if Britain wasn't in the EU, it would be a more free market, a more libertarian place than with all of these regulations and rules coming from Brussels. Uh, now I look at the tone of the kind of Eurosceptic argument, and it is largely, I mean, certainly in the case of UKIP, it's about keeping the foreigners out. Um, and I think that mm -hmm. that is a pretty horrible shift in tone. Um, and it makes me think that a Britain without the EU would not necessarily be a more free market, more libertarian place. It could, in fact, be the opposite. Um, and so I, I'll leave it there. But that, that's kind of my take on the immigration issue. Yes, uh, on immigration, I, I, I noted on my presentation, but I, I, I skipped over it. There's a profound schizophrenia in the British public on immigration. They really like the, the, the ability to move freely around Europe. They really don't like the ability of Europeans to move freely into to the United Kingdom. <laughs> and, and, and this is partly what's, what, 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 what's shaping the, the, the debate. They, they don't want more people uh, here, but they're probably likely to vote in so that they can, uh, they, they can retain uh, the ability to, 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 to go elsewhere in, in Europe. Um, one unfortunate side effect of the immigration debate in, in, in the UK has been because they can't do anything about the free movement of labor under the uh, current system, they, uh, in order to uh, reach something approaching their immigration targets, they have really cracked down very, very hard on immigration from outside yeah. of uh, the, the European Union, which means that now, if, if for instance, you're uh, British and you marry a Canadian, it is almost impossible to get a spousal visa for her unless you're earning a significant amount of money. Uh, this is causing significant hardship within Commonwealth families uh, and once again shows the, uh, the tension between Britain's old uh, alliances and uh, family uh, relationships with the old Commonwealth and its new relationships with Europe. It's a tension that I really can't see any way of getting around at the moment for short of Brexit. There are enormous tensions in this, in this immigration debate wrap, wrapping together a, a vast range of different issues about identity, about welfareism uh, uh, and the rest, about the dysfunctioning welfare state, frankly, in the United Kingdom. Uh, I mean, I'm rather of, uh, on the other side of the pond, I, I rather like Grover Norquist's analysis that he provides here when uh, he's disagreeing with Republicans of a staunchly anti-immigration stance. And he says he keeps hearing the complaint that these foreigners, they come over here they claim our welfare, they take our jobs. So pick, pick one, pick one. Are they claiming welfare or are they claiming our jobs? And again, the argument in the UK is, oh, it's, it's very difficult to cope. Our, our hospitals, our schools, our transport network, they can't cope with all these people coming in. You'll notice that all of these things have one thing in common. They're run by the state. I've not yet heard a supermarket owner saying, Oh my God, I've got too many customers. All these damn people want to roll in and buy tins of food and milk. Not a cinema owner has not complained there are too many people who want to watch movies. It, it is exclusively the state-run elements that seem not to be able to cope. Now, I think that there are 
uh, questions about welfare entitlements and when you get them. If you're not going to completely radically shrink the, the welfare state, you know what? You know, should it be a residency period before you start qualifying? Should there be a level of tax you needed to contribute to before you can start claiming housing benefit? And then there is an identity issue, and just to sort of be. I, I, I think fair to, to UKIP in this regard, although there has been a lot of populist rhetoric about this, some of the more libertarian elements within UKIP were saying we shouldn't have an immigration system that automatically favours Bulgarians and discriminates against Canadians or Bangladeshis. Now, they still have a sort of statist approach that we should pick a number, you know, whatever, 200,000 people a year are allowed to come in. But we should then be blind to the nationality of these people. And the problem with our EU membership at the moment is it entitles anyone who is a European Union citizen to come in, claim our welfare, steal our jobs or whatever, uh, and makes it very, very it's too difficult for people from our Commonwealth background to get in. So I think there are a vast number of different issues wrapped together here. But at the heart of it is the incapability of the state to run uh, a remotely fair, sensible or efficient welfare system. Mm -hmm. In fact, the inability and inefficiency of the state to run a remotely fair, e efficient anything at all. And, and that's where the strain is being felt. And just to John, I, I'm not sure if I fully understood oh, the, the question, um, but the, I mean, the most powerful politician is clearly the Prime Minister. His actual title... Powerful. powerful? Most important. Most important. Powerful most important. All right. the Prime Minister. Yeah. Right. No, well, nevertheless, yes. Yes. <laughs> his real title is actually First Lord of the Treasury. Prime Minister began as an insult, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Pretty powerful, too, I suppose. Um, important. Uh, both, both. Quite important. Yeah. Uh, Prime Minister? Sorry. <laughs> well, if you go to Eden. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe we can uh, discuss the, the fine. I will actually sort of back you up slightly on that. If you look at the constitutional arrangements of, of the UK, there is absolutely no doubt that the most powerful uh, office in the land is that of the monarch. Um, all the. the, all, all the, the it, it, well, yes, because every, everything comes comes from it. The, the, the monarch is the, is the fount of just. The monarch is the fount of justice. The monarch is the fount of honour. So okay. Well, <laughs> uh, not according to the constitutional uh, arrangements of the UK. Uh, okay, I'm going to take uh, another pair. So uh, the woman sitting next to John, and then I'll do another one at the back. So we'll start. Um, no, with this, the, the the woman sitting next to John, right? Pink scarf. No, right there with the pink scarf. There you go. Yeah. Olive Hopkins, I've been in this country since 1968. I have one question. Um, is the new Liberal Democrat Party the same as the old Liberal Party that they had in the 1950s? Okay, so a question about the Liberal Democrats, and then uh, right at the back on the right. Right. So. Uh, my name's Nathan, um, no affiliation. Um, this question's probably mostly for Mr. Murray because it's a specialty, but um, what does the further nationalization of network rail hold for the future of the um, private franchises for rail services? And uh, when I'm in the UK, will I ever be able to watch football matches on a Saturday afternoon? Uh, so, um, well, Mark, you used to work for the Lib Dems, I think. Yeah, the, the, the Liberal Democrats are a merger of two parties. So the, the old Liberal Party is its direct 
predecessor. You can trace the, the institutional history. In 1981, uh, a, a new political party was set up, which was a breakaway from the Labour Party, called the Social Democratic Party, uh, who were critical of Labour for being too left-wing, too socialist. The Liberal Party and the SDP then formed an alliance, uh, and eight years later, most of the two parties merged into the Liberal Democrats. Uh, it, it's of my view that that's actually led to a rather hazier, more sort of middle-of-the-road, non-ideological thinking in that party, because it's a sort of merger of different strands of liberalism and social democrats, and has really just emerged as a kind of sort of middle-of-the-road party, rather than potentially having the cutting edge of, edge of classical liberalism. Um, can I answer the, the football question? Of course. No, I think it's um, very important. That was... Uh, what, 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 you mean association soccer, football? Right? Yeah. You soccer, mean, you mean what you yeah, guys yeah. over here call soccer? Yeah, no, it reminds me of the question of... Um, you, you, you can now, I don't know if you guys have this in the States, but you can now pay extra to uh, watch sports in 3D on, on various channels now in, in the UK. And somebody said to me, oh, have you got, you know, uh, you know, are you able to watch football in 3D? And I said, yeah, I've got a season ticket at St Mary's Stadium, actually. It actually <laughs> happens in 3D in front of me uh, as I go there. So you still can watch football at 3 o'clock on, on, a, on a Saturday, but you'll have to watch it live. I don't think that that... Uh, uh, I don't think that's going to be the case for much longer, though. That rather like American sports, uh, we're moving to a situation in which every game is, is broadcast. Just on the infrastructure point, uh, Ian touched on this with regard to sort of, if you like, some of the stupid or worrying things to watch for in, in our government. Uh, they are particularly addicted to HS2, as it's called, a high-speed, high-speed 2, a rail network that will link London to Birmingham, and then eventually, if they haven't run out of money, which they almost certainly will, uh, further north. Um, and uh, this is a point of, I mean, this is a, a huge vanity project. Some of the estimates that the IA have put on it are running into something like 80 to 100 billion pounds sterling on supposedly helping the northern powerhouse when all of the evidence is actually it would suck more people away from the north towards London. It would actually be used more for for those sort of journeys and is a fantastic waste of money. I'm fond of pointing out that we give international aid to India. Uh, the Indian government has successfully piloted a mission to Mars for unmanned for 150 million pounds. So the Indians are spending 150 million pounds getting to Mars and we're on the verge of spending 100 billion pounds getting to Birmingham. You can, I'm not sure I'm in favour of either infrastructure project, but you can make your mind up about which one is the more egregious waste of money. So it was directed at you? Yes, yeah, no, I, I, Mark is completely right about HS2, and uh, I, I, I have a horrible feeling that even the IEA's uh, estimates are an un, a significant underestimate. I would put it, uh, given previous experience, at, at least 160 billion myself. But um, the, what... There is something very interesting happening with Network Rail. Net Network Rail is a bizarre creature. It's, it, it's not a nationalized industry per se. It is theoretically a company limited by guarantee that does not have owners. It has members. But all of its funding comes for, for, from the government. Um, uh, well, almost all of its funding comes, for, comes from the government. It's basically a vehicle to build these massive infrastructure projects. There is one slight uh, ray of hope on the horizon which is that they're talking about cutting it up into different regional companies, which was actually the model that 
was proposed by the Department of Transport uh, in the very early 1990s, uh, regional, uh, regional companies competing with each other in terms of quality and, and price rather than, than service. And um, if, if you can introduce just a little bit of competition into network rail, I think the, 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 this, this situation will, will be improved uh, considerably. But um, really, you, you have to go, go back to some sort of private integrated uh, rail system in, in, in the UK uh, to avoid the sort of problems that, it, that it's been having since privatization. Uh, vertical separation, which was forced on us by the European Union, I hasten to add, uh, was uh, a huge mistake in my view. And uh, vertical integration, perhaps regional companies, uh, if, this is a, if this is a step in that direction, I can only applaud it. I would just say on the football point, one of the most bizarre aspects of the Conservative Party's election manifesto um, was that they've committed to do everything they can to bring an NFL franchise to the UK. Uh, you heard it here first. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Uh, this is the end of the Q&A session. It's now time uh, for lunch. I can assure the audience it is an American lunch, though we know fish and chips or haggis uh, upstairs. Uh, it is uh, two stories up on the second floor of the star, uh, spiral staircase in the George M. Jaeger Conference Center. There are restrooms up there as well. Uh, please join me in thanking Mark, Tom, and Ian. Yeah.